0: Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. .com/bible.
1: Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. It is common for students to judge their teachers. Worse, students today are encouraged to do so, being routinely asked to fill out teacher evaluation forms. Some have even created websites to aggregate student gossip about their teachers. In a culture that lauds greed and shames mothers, it seems that everyone has an opinion about the one who stands before them bearing gifts, not so and not on Paul's watch who reminds the church, "It is not you who evaluates me, but I who evaluate you, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things." Richard and I discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You're listening to the Bible. As Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Boulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 124 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we wrapped up with Paul's admonition to the community that they must not vacillate They're accusing him of vacillating, and when the people accuse an individual of something, it usually means the people are the ones who are guilty of that very thing.
0: Because they see that the other person is going against their will, and they need to submit to the will of God, and let that other person do their own actions with their conscience judged by God alone.
1: So Paul insisted in chapter 1, with all due respect, God sent Jesus, and Jesus sent me, And I am faithful to the pledge that was written on my heart. You are the ones who are vacillating because your priority is the flesh, not the spirit, which is the written word of God. And so now Paul is going to explain the genuine divine sorrow, the legitimate sorrow that comes from this betrayal, that they did not remain steadfast and that they sold Paul out in order to justify their fleshly perspective, their fleshly will, as you called it. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. You made me sad when I realized you were waffling in what was laid down and what you understood at first, as he mentioned previously. You did start to understand what I was saying, but then something went wrong. I was going to check your room after I
0: told you to pick it up, But I don't want either of us to be sad. So I'm
1: not going to go visit it right now. I'm going to withhold my visit to Corinth so that you wouldn't receive the second divine blessing, which to you would be a curse. Right. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? If he can cause them sorrow, it's because they realized
0: that they didn't fulfill the teaching that was given to them. They realized that they betrayed it. So when... Your child recognizes that they did something bad and come to you and is contrite. It means that your teaching is sinking in with them. I understood that I betrayed the teaching that you gave me. That's why I feel sad. That kind of sadness makes the parent feel happy because the parent understands that the kid is learning, learning how to act correctly.
1: That's right. That's a very good example, Richard. People hear Paul talk about being happy at sorrow, and they kind of crinkle their eyebrows, Because all they can think about is, why would a saint be happy that I'm sad? But when you take a step back and you think objectively about parenting, you're often happy when your kid is sad because they got the message. Unless you're a screwed up Generation X parent who's trying to shelter your children from every possible sorrow because you believe the crap that the baby boomers told us that you're supposed to protect people's egos. If you believe that, you will be depressed in your midlife and you will be miserable and sickly because it's a lie and Paul is not a liar thank God. This is the very thing I wrote you so that when I came I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all for out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears not so that you would be made sorrowful but that you might know the love which I have especially for you.
0: The only way that Paul is going to reflect on his community is, are they following the gospel that he laid out to them, the one that they ascribed to, the ones that they said that they would be loyal to? He is only going to be sad if they betray it, and he's only going to be happy if they uphold it. This is the clear line that Paul is laying out, so that if they rejoice in accepting this teaching, he
1: will rejoice with them. He's trying to reformat their reference for sorrow and joy. Just like previously, he was reformatting their reference for comfort and suffering. You should rejoice at the doing of God's will and sorrow and be sorrowful at the betrayal of God's will. But because you still are children, you rejoice when you get away with disobeying your parents. You think you got away with something. But I'm sorrowful. Because I know that what you got away with is unto your destruction. This is the radical shift of joy coming when I
0: eat and am well fed to the joy of my brother eating and being well fed. Once your joy becomes that of the other, then you can say that you're being faithful to the gospel. And this is what Paul is really pushing. But if
1: any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much. To all of you. Because if you have caused
0: sorrow, it's because of the betrayal of the teaching and who is going to suffer at the betrayal. God's not going to suffer, but the others in the community, because what is the content of the teaching that you're supposed to submit to those around you? So the only sorrow you would be causing would be disloyalty to the teaching that says you're supposed to submit to those around you. A true teacher,
1: a true parent identifies what their disciple wants and takes it away from them. That is how you teach. And this is impossible for our generation to understand because they were told the way that you teach is by giving the disciple what they want and pampering them and coddling them and giving them space and blah, blah, blah. No, you identify what they want, you take it away. You don't fight, you just deny their ego. And their suffering produces joy for their neighbor. So I will rejoice at their suffering when it's the denial of their ego because it makes out of them a fruitful vine in God's household. Now, at the same time, you want to rejoice when you have something and your neighbor doesn't. So your sorrow when I deny you something, if you don't submit to the denial, becomes wickedness. So it's not that sorrow is bad or good. Sorrow for my neighbor is bad if I'm not doing it unto instruction and sorrow for me is good if it's unto my instruction, and so forth and so on. It's, as we always say, functional. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You don't coddle the
0: one that's been causing the problem. You find the one who's been shunned, and you go to them, and you make sure that they're comforted, Why? Because you submit to the neighbor, you submit to the one who is weak in the community. Don't marginalize those that have been rejected by the community. Comfort those who have been rejected in the community and go after the ones who have been doing the rejection and causing the sorrow. Often in our Pharisaism, people are marginalized. But your role is not to say, you know, maybe you don't belong here. Your role is to go and get those people and comfort those people who have been marginalized and then go after the ones who have been marginalizing them, who have been towing the line and making sure that everyone is towing the line and not submitting their will to the neighbor.
1: Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him.
0: The one who is marginalized.
1: Not whether or not he should love you or atone to the community, but you have to go love that one. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. So if I
0: see anyone who's marginalized, I'm going to be interested in talking to those who are causing this sorrow. And I say this specifically so that I can see who is causing sorrow and who is being afflicted. Because in my community, there should be neither.
1: You accused Paul of vacillating. And he said, with all due respect, my yes is the yes of Jesus Christ, which is the promise of God the Father. You're the one who's vacillating. And here in chapter 2, I'm demonstrating to you how you're vacillating. Because clearly, if you were steadfast, you wouldn't have ostracized the weaker brother. Being steadfast in itself is
0: not a good quality. If you're being steadfast to a bad teaching or a wicked teaching... You're a fool. But if you are being steadfast with the correct teaching, then it's
1: good. It's what are you giving your loyalty to? But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes.
0: So Satan wants to come in and start sowing division, giving testimony against the brethren, and working through these people who are gossiping against them, working with those who are gossiping. But I am going to look for forgiveness. If you forgive the one who's marginalized, I'll forgive him also. If you don't forgive him, I won't forgive you.
1: And here you have to hear the word Satan as prosecuting attorney. Satan works for the government. But God is the king in his court. So Satan is the one who's going to try to find fault with you on that day. And Paul is saying, why are you giving Satan the opportunity? By building his case against you in God's court, you are also undermining the community. So don't think of this mystically in terms of spirituality. Think of it logically. If you are giving the prosecuting attorney ammo with which to prosecute you, that means you're behaving stupidly. It's your behavior that's undermining the community, ultimately, not Satan. You're just giving Satan an in to make it worse, and Paul is trying to protect you for your sake. The two sides of the
0: coin here are causing sorrow or forgiving. Which one are you gonna be doing? Which one am I gonna see when I come to visit you? Am I going to see forgiveness Or am I going to see sorrow?
1: Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went to Macedonia. So
0: he's explaining his trip. It's interesting because they were complaining about his trip. He went on this supposed tangent, and Paul, in fact, is staying true to the teaching. And now he's saying, look... Here's how my trip went. I went to Troas for the Gospel of Christ, meaning he was following the teaching, and he was able to stay there. He wasn't able to rest because his brother wasn't there, but then he went on to Macedonia afterwards. He's explaining that this is why I ended up where I did. So he's going to explain why he did. But if he didn't go through the end of chapter 1 and the rest of chapter 2 before he said this, they would think, oh, now he's just defending himself why he didn't come visit us. He needs them, first, to submit to the fact that Paul is following the will of God. Secondly, that if he were to come, he would more likely find disobedience and have to crack down on them if he did come. So it's better for them if he doesn't come, and they have time to get their stuff together. And so he's explaining now why he didn't come.
1: You judge someone, and it seems absolutely clear to you that this person is under judgment. But you find out after the fact that there were extenuating circumstances that you didn't understand. That's what Paul is doing. He's saying, you were judging me, and by judging me you were unwittingly judging God, and now I'm going to tell you why your judgment was folly. Not just because you were betraying God, but here's what it means to betray God. I was taken on all this burden. For your sake! I wasn't sitting in Club
0: Med on the beach. I was in Troas, and my brother wasn't there, and I ended up having to bear the entire burden for myself, and I stayed as long as I could, thank you very much. So I wasn't on vacation. That's not why I didn't come to visit you.
1: Everybody's a critic, but not everybody pays the price with their own blood, as Paul does, and as Christ did. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in
0: every place. When everyone follows the teaching, they manifest the teaching of Christ, and therefore this is the glory of Christ, that the teaching is being manifested. And so he's saying thanks be to God in all the opportunities we have to manifest this teaching, whether it's me traveling to Tross or you taking care of the marginalized brother in the
1: community. This is Joshua wherever you go. So long as you heed my commandments, you're in the land of milk and honey. That's what Paul is saying. Wherever I am, I have the sweet fragrance of the knowledge of God's teaching. That's the incense that pleases God. Not this cheap oil or this cheap incense you use in the churches. That's Isaiah's critique. The cheap incense is a stench in the nostrils of God. He's interested in the incense and the fragrant oil of his word. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And again, you're not a fragrance per se. That's like saying after you put perfume on that you are the perfume. But once the perfume is put on you, you smell nice. Once Paul evangelized you, you started to smell beautiful in God's nostrils. I I like
0: that we are a fragrance of Christ to God. I love that, where it's like, we're putting on the essence of Christ when we're performing his action so that when God sniffs, it smells like Christ.
1: To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And this continues the theme of this diptych of 1 and 2 Corinthians that what appears to you as weakness is not weakness at all. What appears to you as folly is not folly at all. What appears to you as death is not death at all. Because... You can kill Jesus only once. You have one chance. If you kill him and the word of his father still goes out to all the earth, you're out of chances. So you think you killed Jesus, but I think that's a questionable assumption on your part.
0: Right. If you have this essence of Christ because of your actions, then those who believe that Jesus was this criminal that got killed and got what came to him, then they're going to see you as criminals who are getting what comes to you. But if they see Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, then they're going to see you as the disciples of God because you follow his Son's teaching.
1: And the martyrs bear witness to every generation that the annoying problem that the Romans tried to snuff out in collusion with the Sanhedrin keeps cropping up. From the time the Gospel has been written until now, there has never been a generation when there wasn't at least one martyr who reminded the powerful that this problem of the resistance against human tyranny is not going away. You did not defeat Jesus. You still have to deal with the teaching of Jesus. For we are not like many, peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of Of God. This peddling reminds me of
0: the epistle we read in Ephesus School this week because we're looking at Acts, at the interaction between Philip and Simon the magician because once Simon saw Peter and John having the ability to bring down the Holy Spirit on the people, he's like, how much can I pay you to get this ability? And Peter, of course, tells him, you really don't understand, that it's a teaching that's not bought and sold. It's a teaching that's given freely and received freely but is lived out at a very costly price of one's life.
1: Paul is telling you, I'm not like other apostles who are careerists. I'm not doing this to make a living. I'm doing this in the sight of God because the pledge was written on my heart and I am committed to it without wavering and with zeal. Godly zeal, not ungodly zeal. Thanks very much, Dr. Thank you very much, Father. Have a great week. Thanks, you too.